And we're recording. Hello, fellas. Okay. How are you tonight? Hello, world. I'm doing, Hello, world. I'm doing oh, good. good grief. Yeah. Oh, good grief. Typical blog sign on. <laughs> this is what well, you say when you've got nothing to say. Yeah. <laughs> and that, well, that's like the first thing that anybody ever said in a computer language, right? That's the story behind that. Before and behind that phrase is hello world. I think so. Is like see in hello world, see out or something like that. It's like the first thing ever said on a telephone was ahoy hoy. Oh, is that really? (laughs) Is that what that's from? I believe so. Yeah. Oh, just learning the origin stories of all these sayings. Uh, Trying to think of another one. But no, that's all I got. I just I just have hello world and ahoy. I guess. Another goofy origin story. <laughs> okay, so hello and welcome to Aspiring Minds, episode four for January 18th, 2023. Episode four. Episode four. We made it. It's like a month. We made it. That's it's commitment. A month hanging out with you guys. That's, yeah. that's yeah. four times that four times that the world knows about that we've gotten together and done this. One other secret time that huh. we've only referred to, but nobody ever gets to hear because of no, without sure a substantial donation. Because of reasons, <laughs> good reasons. <laughs> I, I'm still a little surprised at how many people actually listen to the show. Like, not that we're like huge, but it's cool that not just my wife and our significant others are actually listening. And yeah, I had lunch with a friend today. I had lunch with a friend today and casually mentioned, like, not in a promoting this way, but uh, casually mentioned that I was going to be doing this tonight because he, you know, you said you have lunch. He said, What are you doing tonight? Uh, And uh, he went and downloaded the episode like right away and listened to episode one, which was like the wrong episode to listen to because we've gotten better, like fine wine. We've refined and and gotten better as we've practiced a little bit, but uh, I'm responsible for adding one listener today. We'll see if we can keep him after today. Let's see. Can we monetize him? That's my question. Mm, Is he monetizable? I don't want to monetize him. him. Oh, okay. I like him too much. Not worth monetizing. I like all our listeners. No. I like all our listeners. You have intimate knowledge though about what we could sell to this one person. I mean, we really could reach out to an advertiser with that information and target it incredibly to that, to that guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uber micro marketing. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. We're inventing it right now. Nobody has ever done this before. Nobody has ever uh, known something about someone and then sold it to them like that. Uh, It was definitely innovator. I'm a disruptor. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It was definitely that's a great plot of an episode you. of The New Girl. Yeah, call, well, that's too. Have you seen? Uh, have you seen Glass Onion, the Netflix yeah, movie? Heck yeah! Oh yeah. By well, the By the way, straight to my name is Jacob Schumer. Uh, my name is Jacob Schumer. I'm a land use attorney, <laughs> uh, local government and land use attorney. Uh, other people are other people on this call. Uh, Andrew, sorry. Do you want to? Do you want to? No, no, no. I think we forgot that we were doing this. <laughs> No worries at all. Yeah. So just to kind of give people uh, an understanding of what this show is about, in case they can't already tell, it's just three lawyer friends goofing around. And it's for your enjoyment, the listener, and our enjoyment, the podcasters. And um, nothing we say should be taken as legal advice or any kind of advice whatsoever. Uh, I'm Andrew Leahy. I'm a tax and technology attorney, and I don't play Dungeons and Dragons. 
Oh. He mentions Dungeons and Dragons because we're going to be talking about D&D tonight. Tonight's going to be a D&D packed episode. Uh, my name is Jason Ramsland. I am an employment law attorney. Uh, I sue people's bad bosses. That's my elevator pitch that I've really been refining. Uh, and I'll tell you, I've met like five new people touring offices today, potential office sites today, and people get it. It's an office pitch or an uh, elevator pitch that works. I'm going to stick with it. Oh. I sue bad bosses. Oh, I thought you were saying you met five people today and they were all like, I have a terrible boss that I need you to sue. Or they were uh, the bad employers having a were, terrible boss. Nobody mentioned having a terrible boss. Well, somebody did mention having a terrible boss today, but we're not going to go into that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it seems to be working out. SueMyBadBoss.com. There's your uh, commercial for the episode. No. We have a sponsor. But- it's me. I'm the sponsor. <laughs> So before I, I interrupted up. us, <laughs> before I interrupted us to try to to do the intro so we could get it over with, Glass Onion, <laughs> uh, Netflix movie, Knives Out sequel, kind of, uh, yeah, that's that movie is like all about making fun of people who describe themselves as disruptors. Maybe I should like maybe that's the ironic title that I take upon myself is a disrupt. What did I call myself? A disruptor and innovator or disruptor yeah. in the sales I think you space. Should put that on your LinkedIn yeah. profile immediately. I mean, as soon as the show is over, that mm. should be the headline disruptor that. Yeah. That's the target audience for that. Oh, for sure. You and the uh, crypto bros, you can finally uh, fit, fit in with your other NFT loving crypto bros. If you put disruptors <laughs> in your bio on Mastodon or something. All you need oh. is a lavalier. I've been looking for a and... lane. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. This yeah. land use, you I know, mean, the land use is done. It's over. Yeah. That's 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 finished. You got to move on to something else now. Yeah, we are out of land. Out of land. So you know, we're running. What, low, what are we going to do now? New land. Yeah. No, they aren't. Uh, so did you guys see about the Third Circuit uh, adopting a local rule or calling for comment on a local rule uh, saying that electronic filings filed after five p.m. were going to be counted on the next day? I know you did, uh, but yeah. I'm asking you about it. <laughs> yeah, I, you know you you know that we saw it because you sent it to us. Yes. Yeah, you yeah. showed us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I know Andrew. Right. Andrew, you're not a lot. You're not a litigator, so no. uh, yeah, My, it, so it didn't I'll, I'll strike your heart. <laughs> I'll do the opening question here. That way, I, I can sort of step back and let you guys fight this out. Is there any argument to be made where this is a good thing for some sort of? Um, uh, quality of life improvement thing like basically get you know all the younger associates now will be forced to get things in by five and they can go home and have dinner is there any argument to be made there hmm. silence i i can see it <laughs> i can see it but man do i hate it like there's a lot more it's a lot easier to have uh there's the, it feels like you have a lot more time to wiggle to wiggle with at like 8 a.m. Because you're already, when you wake up, because I'm not going to wake up at 2 a.m. to work all day. Um, Right. But let's say I get to work. I know I got to do a ton of work. Uh, I I, look, theoretically, totally. It's like, yeah, you're just going to front load it by six hours. What's six hours in a deadline? It's not really a big deal. Or uh, seven hours. Um, But man, in practice, that's going to make the end of the day. So so many associates are going to get like yelled at and screamed at because everybody knows the <laughs> everybody knows the midnight deadline of the next right. day of the calendar. Uh, but I mean, mm-hmm. like, imagine if you practice in multiple circuits. That's just one small thing. Uh, you practice mm. in multiple circuits and the third circuit different. 
But, you know, I can see a lot of theoretical reasons why this makes sense. And people were mentioning right. pro se filings. Like, it's going to put them on equal footing with pro se people who can, who don't e-file and just drop stuff off the clerk's office. But man, just gut gut instinct. I hate this. This is like, ah. Oh. It's gonna. It's striking me at my heart. Going like, oh god. Okay, so Jake, uh, one thing that I'm not sure that I understand right now is this: the Third Circuit making a rule for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, or is this the Third Circuit making a rule that's going to apply to every district court in the Third Circuit? Do you know? Oh, that's a good question. Because uh, so. Here's the thing is when you practice in multiple jurisdictions, like I do, I practice in multiple jurisdictions and probably so do you if you're, I I don't know if you're admitted to multiple federal courts, but like every, gosh, this is true, whether you work in federal or state courts, uh, every jurisdiction, every court district, every county has their own local rules. Like they can totally do this already. And so you already have to abide by you know, however many jurisdictions that you're in, you have to abide by that many sets of local rules. And this is just taking what seems to me, I mean, you can draw a straight line from this uh, to this from the olden days when courthouses closed at 4.30 or 5 o'clock. And if you wanted your filing to be stamped for that day, you had to get there and file it before the courthouse closed. And so this harkens back to that time we haven't lived in that time for a while. Uh, and any court that's had electronic filing that I have ever encountered in 13-ish years of practicing, mm-hmm. you, you, your filing can be stamped for a day as long as you file it during that day. And not, a, not if it's accepted that day by the, by the court, uh, not if it's approved or anything like that, just if you like submit it. It's the electronic equivalent of dropping it in the mailbox. If it gets in the mailbox by 1159, you're good. This is modifying that. And you can see how, you know, uh, folks who were involved in the before times, before we had electronic filing can say, uh, well, this is just maintaining what we used to have with the you know, it's got to be filed in the courthouse by five o'clock before the courthouse closes or dropped in the mail, I guess, in time to get postmarked for that day, which isn't going to be five o'clock most of the time anyway. But even if it's a, if you can draw a line to the old times before we had electronic filing, you still had this period uh, of like what, 10, 15, 20 years of you've been able to electronically file for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, and so we've lived in the like the fast <laughs> in the wonderful glow of being able to have until 1159 to uh, file these things. And now you're stealing seven hours back from me is what it feels like. Yeah. And even if it's a bad habit, we really do like treat that last day as like the cushion day of like, okay, if I really need to, I can just get everything done on that day. Yeah. Uh, yep. I have a habit of filing everything a day ahead of time, just in case I mess up the calculation. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, it's nice to have that last day just in case just looking at the rule really quick. I think it's just for the circuit, like not the district courts below it, but just for the circuit. I will ask mm-hmm. you though, Jason, I don't, I've only done state appeals in federal court. Does the notice of appeal get filed at the trial court level? The jurisdictional notice of appeal, where if you blow that deadline, your case is gone. I've never done a federal appeal. Oh, okay. I've never done a federal appeal either, so I don't know. 
That's my real worry is that there are some deadlines out there that are like, it, you know, most deadlines, you blow it by three hours. It's like nobody, nobody's really going to care. If somebody gives you grief about it, they're the unreasonable ones. But some deadlines are jurisdictional, quote, jurisdictional, meaning mm-hmm. you blow it, you're dead. It doesn't matter. Court cannot help you. And if this local rule makes things jurisdictional, like applies to jurisdictional things, I'm no, that that should not be the case. Yeah. And ultimately, like if everybody's going to if there's a lot of hand waving about this whole thing, like it's just OK, plan better plan around the rule you know that the rule exists and you can plan uh, around it just like you plan around the fact that you have to submit it by 11:59 and you can't submit it at you know 105 a.m and still have it be timely filed and so it's just a seven hour shift right but it feels like you're taking something away ultimately nobody's mm-hmm. career is going to be made or broken by this but it feels like uh if you have this absolute crunch of a day on the day that you've got a filing deadline like you've got that padding built in there because you want to file it by five and go home you're not planning to work until midnight most of the time but it's nice to have that extra security blanket and file by five doesn't feel like a security blanket the same way file by midnight feels like so what is the counter argument if if not the quality of life thing i mean like what why has anybody talking about why the third circuit is choosing a this is just one judge arbitrarily thinking this is a great idea or i i the story i read is that that judge wanted to put people on the same on the same footing as pro se filers who have to file papers um which i understand that theoretical argument i just hate it like i just like man it's so nice to not have to plan to get everything done by 5 p.m and have that cushion uh for a norm, you know, a normal office. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's actually written in the comments to the proposed rule here too. Uh, it's, uh, let's see, it's what a two page document at the start of the second page here on lines 19 through 24, uh, the federal rule of appellate procedure 26, a four, this is exciting. This is good podcast content right here. <laughs> defines the end of the last day of filing in the court of appeals as midnight in the time zone of the circuit clerk's principal office for electronic filing. And when the clerk's office is scheduled to close for other means of transmission. And so that kind of <laughs> that kind of plays to the point of folks who are going to electronically file, which all attorneys are required to electronically file. Uh, and really, oh, the only folks who can even file by paper are generally pro se folks. So the comment suggests that that explanation is right, that it's sort of democratizing putting things on the same foot for pro se filers or non-attorney filers and attorneys okay fine maybe i maybe i think that attorneys should get a special privilege here of being able to work <laughs> extra late if they really want to because i don't know law school is terrible and this is a fair bit of compensation for how terrible law school is. <laughs> our compensation all is you we get, get six, six hours we get seven extra hours to file yeah. our stuff yeah, extra work. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It, it makes sense. It's fine. It's a local rule. That it's absolutely within the circuit court's discretion to do it. Uh, it's going to apply to, it looks like, third circuit appellate lawyers. Uh, appellate lawyers are, by and large, kind of a different breed anyway. And I would be surprised if very many of them were scurrying to do last minute things anyway. The same 
that maybe some of us uh, district court and state court litigators are where we're pushing deadlines all the way up. Uh, I I want to believe that appellate lawyers are more responsible with their time than I as a trial court litigator am. Who, who knows? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I didn't even think of this. But so briefs and uh, appellate briefs in the 11th Circuit, uh, at least, and I've bet in a bunch of other circuits, that's not you file your PDF. That is, you send your PDF to a binder who does a specific binding with a specific colored sheet for a specific brief. You but you get seven copies of a spiral bound brief with certain kind of paper, uh, and so you don't even really have the option to to electronically file, at least in the Eleventh Circuit where I am. And so a lot of circuits have crazy like physical filing rules. And so this isn't going to affect like the main pleadings at least. Uh, but you know, this rule, this is the, I know that I'm like making, we're making mountains out of molehills that are here. This is like a tiny little thing, but it's fun. It's fun anyway. So I want to do it anyway. Well, speaking of fun, the other major topic we had is, is great fun <laughs> that uh, I defer to both of you guys. Uh, you know, far, I know basically what Jake has assigned us to read today for this episode. Yeah. This is an oops all Jake episode, basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think you were going to talk about the Wizards of the Coast open gaming license debacle, disaster, retread, etc. Uh, or both of you were. Yeah. So before we go too deeply into the waters of this, I, I want to explain something about the podcast a little bit. Uh, there is an official or unofficial rule. I don't know exactly. We haven't really. There are no official rules, right? The first rule of Esquiring Minds is there are no rules. Uh, are no rules. But right. really, this is in the in the interest of keeping this fun. This is an intentionally unresearched or very, very lightly researched podcast. So that's why we start off with the heading of none of this should be taken as legal advice or actual advice, because before we get any legal advice or actual advice, we would do our research. Uh, and so this is a podcast that is us goofing around and dealing with things mostly off the cuff. So when Andrew talks about Jake assigning reading, he's joking, it's tongue in cheek, yeah, a little bit. No, I, I told you all not to read anything. I told you guys, like, no, this is. I put a million links in our in our file, uh, but I was like, don't read any. I got it. I got it, boys. Look, I'm deep diving on this. I know. I got you look, on that, but here's my concern. I am such a novice for Dungeons and Dragons that I was concerned that I would be completely outside of my depth. Like, never mind everything you were just talking about with filing and appellate. I don't know what the what you're all talking about with that. Um, I am even less of an expert in Dungeons and Dragons, so I had to figure out what what was going on here, at least to sort of base myself and be able to even speak slightly intelligently on this. But um, okay. what I understand so far is that I'm going to need you to like literally tell me what even these rule sets are, like what they're used for. But my right. understanding is basically something was licensed under a, a, a very uh, permissive license, and now someone is trying to walk that back. Right. So. Have either of you played it? Uh, played any tabletop game at all? And by tabletop, I mean like Dungeons and Dragons, anything similar to Dungeons and Dragons. No, oh, I was no. I was born in 1982, and uh, I was raised in a in a very conservative Christian family. 
Uh, and uh, that was like the height of the satanic panic. And so there was mm-hmm. no Dungeons and Dragons. I wasn't even allowed to play like Final Fantasy video games until I reached a certain <laughs> age because of what was perceived to be a, a closer connection to Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, which apparently, I don't know, it was probably it was probably James Dobson that convinced everybody that, uh, uh, no, you can't play Dungeons and Dragons because mm-hmm. it's from Satan because Dungeons and Dragons. And I don't know. So, no. Well, no, I didn't play. I, I didn't play any count? until I. <laughs> you sure? Did you okay, role play good, while yeah. you were playing backgammon? That's the real question. I pretended uh, to have fun. I didn't play. <laughs> yeah, I didn't play any until I was a lawyer. Because um, I always wanted to, but I didn't. I didn't have any friends, so that didn't work out. Um, but uh, so, but you might you might get the basics if you watch Stranger Things. You get the basics. There's rolling of dice. You play a character and there's a whole bunch of rules. Um, And the important part about this is in the 2000s, Dungeons and Dragons, most well-known tabletop game, most well-known. And I'm going to say tabletop because there's a whole genre of things that is not Dungeons and Dragons where it's similar. You have rules, you have a character, you have and you basically make up a story. There's one person usually a form called the dungeon master who is either ma- using an existing story or making up a new story. A lot of there's a whole community around making up a new story. But mm-hmm. in the 2000s, Dungeons and Dragons was the king then, it's the king now, and they were like, look, rules are not copyrightable. Everybody knows this. You there's like some copyright protection for the actual written manual, but rules themselves cannot be copyrighted. So they're like, how do we copyright this thing? How do we monetize this thing where anybody can just do the exact same thing and sell their own version and they'd be fine. And what they did is they put out this open gaming license, uh, OGL 1.0 a, and it's a two page license. It's very simple. I read it. In preparation for this, unlike Nerd. other topics, I researched the hell out of this because this was Try so hard. interesting to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Here we uh, go. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was this wasn't for the podcast. I would have done it anyway. Um, but uh, <laughs> the the idea was they're going to they're publishing a version of their rule book. And this rule book is 300 something pages. And we have a two page license agreement. That says you hereby have a perpetual license to use this rule book for your own IP. You can't say you're Dungeons and Dragons, but you can use this rule book and you can say you're Dungeons and Dragons compatible. And that the way the way that they were thinking about it was, look, if we make it so that everybody is allowed to use our rule book and then make money publishing their own content with our rule book, that'll drive people to buy copies of our own rule book. We're going to be the only player in town because we are the main, maybe not the only player, but the main player. We're going to sell copies of our rule book. We're going to expand our brand because other, even the ones that are not us, even these people selling other stories are still going to use our rule book, drive people to Dungeons and Dragons, and it's going to expand the community. And that's kind of exactly what happened uh, for the last 20 years. And successfully Dungeons and Dragons is kind of the anchor around everything in the tabletop space, which is like, is it a Dungeons and Dragons 
compatible game is it are the rules Dungeons and Dragons. So I'm playing right now. I am in a campaign actually with a, a friend from the public defender's office from years ago and uh, a couple of his friends. And we're playing something called ultra modern, which is not made by wizards of the coast, but uses the Dungeons and Dragons five rule set through this license. And so there's a whole community that is based on using these rules and for different games for their own fiction. This is third parties. There are a whole businesses that are devoted to creating fiction campaigns based on these uh, uh, based on these rules. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, it's okay. So there's a, there's a uh, there's one knit I want to pick with you because I've looked through the agreement too. I did homework begrudgingly. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I've looked through the agreement. I don't see anywhere where for Wizards of the Coast, right? Because this is the company that issued, that made D&D uh, and uh, uh, issued this OGL 1.0, this uh, uh, open game license. I don't see where it's monetized anywhere. Like where they get any, because it's royalty no. free in this OGL 1.0. It's royalty free. Yeah. And so no. what Wizards of the Coast aren't making money from, you know, Jason and Jake get together and we write this super sweet uh D campaign that we publish and we monetize and we include a copy of the license in there, just like it says. We use it under OGL 1.0 uh, and we make uh, you know, $18 selling this thing. Uh we don't owe any of that money to Wizards of the Coast. So it's right. not monetized for Wizards of the Coast. So I want to make that part clear We're, because I'm not sure it was clear from your description. You may right. resume. <laughs> yeah. So it's a perpetual license. No money. You don't. They don't own anything you use. It's uh, and um, importantly, there's a part that says that if they update the license, you can continue to use non-updated versions of the license. Um, and so the whole concept of this was. They're going to generate this community, which they successfully did, of third-party content for Wizards of the Coast. And there have been, apparently, rumblings of for Dungeons & Dragons. And there have been, apparently, uh, rumblings that they were going to change all this. In December, the CEO said their uh, Dungeons & Dragons brand was under-monetized. Uh, and so there was a change. There was, ch- there was change in a coming. Uh, and... In January, January 5th, I believe, it was leaked that the new version was coming out and that started a whole bedlam because of the uh, because of the changes that were made to the license. Okay, so uh, on that, was there any sort of thought that this could be coming down the pike? Because in, in I also did a little bit of begrudging homework in Section Nine, um, where they say that you can continue to use other licenses that they issue or the content under that license. They talk about authorized versions of the license. That seems like that was sort yeah. of put in there at that point in one point oh a to sort of seed the the future for being able to presumably have a deauthorized license. Yeah. And so when the when the new version came out, that was what they pointed to was, was this, what does authorize mean? Because authorize is not defined. What is an authorized? Right. Because 1.0a is definitely an authorized version of the license. And the question is, are they allowed to say, never mind, it's not anymore? Because the new version mm-hmm. has a bunch of things that people found extremely objectionable, uh, especially the companies that have built themselves around producing root. Uh, fiction and 
adventures using the 5.0 rulebook, like royalties, they would have to start paying royalties above a certain income threshold of like $750,000. They had to grant Wizards of the Coast a license to use anything that also used the mm-hmm. D&D rulebook. So they were theoretically mm-hmm. licensing, uh, automatically licensing the uh, uh, whatever their product is to Wizards of the Coast for free. But maybe most importantly, they deauthorized the 1.0 license. And so it was a huge question of, first of all, what does that mean for existing 1.0 works? That is existing works based on that 1.0 license. Does that mean they can't print copies of that? The stuff that they spent so much time creating, can they not print more mm-hmm. copies? Does it, or does it mean that they can't make new works? But in either case, Wizard of the Coast was saying, and we're never going to know because Wizard of the Coast has backed off, as a, as we'll discuss in a second. Uh, but they said that they were deauthorizing version 1.0a. Uh, which caused some consternation from former Wizards of the Coast executives, which said, that's not a thing. Uh, I was there in the room. That's not supposed to happen. Talking about royalties, if I remember correctly, it was like 25% over 750,000. It was seemingly a huge Mm -hmm. number, like uh, on, on, by the way, on revenue too. This was not on profits. And so what I was wondering is, because I really have no idea, do you have any idea, any sense of the scope of the market for these sorts of games? Like, what what kind of figure are we looking at? I, I, I'm not looking to put you on the spot where you actually have to give a number, but like, I, I literally <laughs> oh, don't yeah. even know I the order of magnitude. I mean, is it a hundred million dollars? So is it a billion dollars? I've got I've got a little bit of information on this. Uh, there there was one company. I don't know the name of the company right now, but apparently, like in the early teens, early to mid teens. There was one company that on this OGL 1.0 license was actually outselling Wizards of the Coast and making more money than Wizards of the Coast uh, off of this D&D IP. Jake, do you know the name of the company? Is it Paizo? Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. I don't know if that's exactly right, but it was something with a P. Uh, and uh, uh, and done, the guys at D&D, and I think when the CEO says that D&D is under monetized, I think this is exactly what he's talking about. And so you've got these folks who are using this OGL in good faith, authorized to do it, but still using mm-hmm. this this OGL with no license fee, no royalty that they're paying for it. And they're, re- they're just achieving a ton of revenue uh, by using this license and they're allowed to do it. And I think it's a perfectly reasonable response for Wizards of the Coast to say, well, this is our IP. This is we are responsible for creating this or we own it. They probably didn't create it. They probably bought it from somebody. Yeah, I think uh, they bought it in, from another in true uh, Zuckerberg and uh, <laughs> Zuckerberg fashion. He ended up taking it over. Uh, but like the owners of the substantial portion of the IP are getting outsold by somebody else. And that just kind of doesn't feel great. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I think that that swung back so that now Wizards of the Coast are uh you know enjoying a greater portion of the market share the the lion's share of the market at this point but i think that's where it started from this impetus towards further monetization especially once you get above that three quarters of a million dollar threshold yeah i definitely agree that they were like (laughs) jealous is that the right word they're like look at all this money that we could be getting but the thing is 
that even for those companies that were making, well, I, I didn't know they were making more than Wizard of the Coast, even for those companies that were making more, like what they had isn't that isn't that protected in law because the play the actual act of play is totally made up by the players like the thing that makes wizard like D tabletop games special and fun has nothing almost nothing to do with what's written on the page uh wizard of the coast isn't really contributing that much to the to the community through its uh ogl and that's one of the big uh, reactions to this was a lot of companies were like, we don't actually need the OGL. We have, we're going to take your exact same rules because the rules are not protected. We're going to rewrite the manual. Uh, we're going to rename the things because there's some concern that naming it, con- naming constitution, constitution is protected. We're g- and we're just going to use your rules and you have nothing to say, say to us. And so really like, I understand like, they are the center of the world, but there's nothing legally protecting their center of the world. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and to your point, um, what, what was the, where, where did the push come from to release the rules under the OGL to begin with? Like, is that not, I'm really asking this question. It sounds like it's a rhetorical question, but isn't that sort of an acknowledgement that they didn't see this, they saw this as something to build upon rather than something to monetize itself. Yeah, it was it was something to build. They wanted to build an ecosystem. They wanted to build upon the whole community. Uh, another thing that we haven't touched on is that it's actually not a lucrative business at all. Even if you had the, even if rules were protectable, uh, because if you haven't played it, you can buy one rule book and be good for a whole five person group for years and years. Because you only need one rule book, really. And once you learn the rules, uh, you don't need to look at it that much. Uh, I In my campaign, we have three rule books. Really, we don't really need all three. <laughs> and most of the time, they are closed. Um, so it's not a very, it's not a huge business. Where, where the business really is, is like, you know, figurines and maps and uh, all kinds of stuff they can copyright. Uh, and they are, they are definitely doing that. Um, and excuse me. Uh, and, uh, that's where they, you know, maybe they overstepped here in trying to go for the rules. Yeah. And sort of importantly, because this wasn't really clear to me at the, at the start of this, you've said it several times, but it only applies to tabletop games, right? This doesn't apply to anything else like video games that are built upon right. the rule to the extent they can be built upon the rules. None of that, that is not <laughs> licensed under the OGL, right? That all they're free to, I assume still monetize. Yeah. Well, there's uh Oh, you mean like video games could use the, uh, the, well, some video rule- games have used the OGL. Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you've played oh, okay. uh divinity original sin or heard of it, uh, I I've believe those it. use the OGL. Because those are those use the Dungeons uh, and Dragons rule set. Uh, Isn't but, like Baldur's hmm. Gate and like Neverwinter yeah. Nights? Aren't those based on the same too? Yep. Okay, um, I played those, and so those would be based on those would be licensed under the OGL. They were using uh, Wizards right. of the Coast IP theoretically um, licensed under. Okay, right. Yeah, and that's one thing that people were saying that prompted this was Dungeons and Dragons is a brand, 
It's a it's a big brand um, and they want to control it. And they have this OGL out here that says anybody and everybody can use it. You accept this license by using it. So they have basically no control over their like their brand, even though it's true that you can't say you're Dungeons and Dragons. You can put Dungeons and Dragons compatible and people understand what the OGL is. And you could say, I'm using the OGL license. And that was something that people were concerned of with, with D&D. And that gets into their stated justifications for why they, why they did this whole deal. Which I can get into now. Which is So there was a huge popular uprising because people love their system. They love getting third-party content. And all those third, these third-party companies who make campaigns that are not Wizards of the Coast had themselves a little revolt, had them and said, we have no reason to keep using your OGL then. We have no reason to keep using it because uh, like they make money. But from what I understand, the margins are actually really low. Like it is not 25%. They don't have 25% to give Wizards of the Coast. Right. Um, and so Wizards of the Coast came out with a statement after like a week after the update. Um, and this is the, these, these are the three reasons why they said they published the OGL. And this is like, maybe, maybe made things worse by a lot. Their number one reason, this is the first set. This is the second sentence. When we initially like conceived David Letterman style, uh, top three, top, yeah, 10, top, top, number top 10, 10, bottom yeah. three. Can you hear this? When yeah. we initially conceived of revising the OGL, it was with three major goals in mind. First, we wanted the ability to prevent the use of D&D content from being included in hateful and discriminatory products. I am super on board with this. Yes. The Nazis yeah, out like of games. I mean, right. Nazis yeah. can be in but, the games if it's Wolfenstein. Here's the thing. Do you actually enemy, believe yeah. that that's their number one goal? That's the, that's the real question. So... I, I think it's entirely possible. I am not in the D&D world, so I don't know this, but I know enough to know that there are some undesirable elements that have really latched onto D&D. And so I haven't done it partially because I don't want to pollute my YouTube uh, algorithm and history here, but I bet you that there is a deep, deep hole that you can go down with like Nazi D&D stuff. I, I'm willing to Oh, yeah, really? Uh, uh, oh yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, it won't again. It can't say it is D and D, but it's out there for sure. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, like, I I believe that that is true. And I I haven't I didn't comb through the two page OGL to see if this was the case. But I don't know if they can deauthorize things specifically because of offensive content. And so. I think that that is a great reason to write a new OGL or a revision to the OGL to keep the Nazis from using your cool stuff. Okay. So let, let me, uh, let me go through the three reasons and then I'm going to okay. go to the actual leaked full version of the new license because it, it's kind of illuminating on their priorities. Uh, second, they said they wanted to address those attempting to use D and D in web three and blockchain and NFTs to stop that from happening. NFT people just as bad as Nazis. So I'm on board. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. Spicy take from Andrew. (laughs) Um, And third, we wanted to ensure OGLs for the content creator 
the home brewer, aspiring designer, our players in the community, not major corporations to use for their own commercial and promotional purposes. Yeah. So, that, so this uh, is this is our product. We want to be the ones monetizing it. We don't care so much about, you know, little mom and pop or uh, you know, the guy, the Stranger Things kids writing their own campaign. Like we don't care about that. We care about these folks who are raking in more money than we are on our IP. Yeah. yeah. They jealous. Um so, so so here's he so I I understand. Uh, I, I, you, you poor, you poor Hasbro subsidiary. I understand you you want, you want to make it a money. You want, you want to, you want to monetize that under monetized brand. Uh, but maybe you're trying to squeeze blood from a stone because this is not particularly protected. This content is not particularly protected, but as for the hateful content. So they're saying they are deauthorizing OGL. Uh, and we discussed a little bit about how maybe that's okay. You can deauthorize OGL 1.0. And that's, they're saying, you know, no, no more of this. Uh, another IP lawyer was saying that that is akin to revocation because the license in the OGL is, does not say it's irrevocable. And apparently the default, I was, I, this is according to this IP lawyer who I, he says he's an IP lawyer. I don't know. I'm not, uh, but uh, okay. he says that uh, if a license doesn't say it's irrevocable, then it's revocable. In which case, that means that if there's all, if there is hateful content out there, they can already revoke 1.0 licenses for that. They can already go to somebody publishing hateful stuff under the OGL and revoke it as of now. But under the new one, so under OGL 1.1, this is the entirety of the operative language when it comes to hateful content. Okay. You will not use any of the content or works covered by section one for any harmful, discriminatory, illegal, obscene, or harassing purposes. So that's, that's not, a, that's not a lot, but also it's not like very good. <laughs> like, but like, what it's is a, sure, an obs- what's an obscene purpose? It didn't say that you can't use it for obscene content. It said you can't use it for an obscene purpose. Like playing a game. Uh, to I think you're splitting hairs. Do there. something obscene. Uh, yeah, but that's what that's what we're going to do in a lawsuit. Mm. It said use for discriminatory purposes. So let's say you publish a Nazi, a Nazi book and you say, I'm not using it for discriminatory purposes. It's just it's just racist content It is discriminatory, right? Right, it's discriminatory it, content. It's just it's, content. I, my purpose is, you know, is for the my purpose yeah. is to sell the fellow Nazis. You know, right. that's not just to nobody's going to buy. Like, yeah, that's not what my Ooh. purpose isn't. I don't think anybody other than Nazis is even going to know I exist. So, it anyway. at the very least seems very brief. Like, if this is their number one yeah. reason for you know revoking an old uh, license or you know the, the previous license and, and issuing a new one, you yeah. would expect it would be perhaps a little bit more robust. Yeah, that's as opposed to the you know the royalty version is uh, it, the royalty language is like a couple uh, many they hammer that out pretty well. Uh, yeah, hmm. it's uh, uh, it has a whole reporting structure and registration structure. Uh, tears, you know. Um, but apparently, here's the thing. That's 
what I'm telling you, I, I've been playing Devil's Advocate this whole time. Plot twist. I think you guys are right. I think that was actually <laughs> number one. Because <laughs> they immediately, like, they're just like, we don't need a royalty. We don't need a royalty. We, we don't care. <laughs> like, please stick around. But they they really, I, th- I think you're right. I think they want to protect their brand because... Because they're putting movies out, man. Uh, did you guys know there's a Don- Dungeons and Dragons movie coming out? Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. uh It's it's got like a not uh, inconsiderable cast. It's got who's yeah. the guy? Who's the guy who played uh, Kirk on the Star Trek reboot? It's got that guy. Yeah, it's got it's got a killer cast actually. Like yeah. I don't I don't know if it's going to be good, but I really like the cast. It's what Timothy Oliphant? Is that who it is? Oh gosh, I don't know. Hang on one sec. You keep talking. I'll look it up. No, There's not really a quality, I hear your clickety clack of quality games made from. Or, I'm sorry, quality movies made from games. Like I'm thinking of Battleship, the the movie, which I didn't see, Bro. but I understand to be mostly a punchline. Uh, it's got Chris Pine. I don't know Jumanji. why I thought it was Timothy Holofont. Jumanji, okay, Jumanji. you're well, forgetting was Jumanji. There a Jumanji from was there a games? Jumanji game prior I to the movie? Don't know. I'm, I'm I don't think there was. Assuming that there was. Right. Oh, there, there was no. Wait, but. You know, you know what is a good okay. This is going to be my most uh, uh, galaxy brain take of the podcast so okay. far. You know, right, it's a good I'll get uh, role playing game movie, the Lego Movie, because that was all about that dude role playing his Legos in his basement. I, if you haven't seen the Lego Movie, spoilers. It's a dude playing Legos in his basement, and that's the whole thing. That sounds anyway. horrible. That sounds like a terrible movie. <laughs> it's, it, it's an awesome movie. Um, oh, okay. The Lego, the Lego movie, the animated one. Anyway. Um, oh, okay. Now, now you know. Uh, but yeah, so they, they want to build, they want their brand to be strong. Um, right. But what really seems like they screwed up here is Paizo and these little companies were not making that much money. And that's who they really like threatened. Like they weren't making yeah. enough where it's worth it when D and D the reason why they cu- they pulled back was they were making like 30 bucks a month off of that is versus of the coast was making like 30 bucks a month off of people paying a subscription for like tools online, which is extremely protectable, extremely monetizable. And they were about to right. come out with new digital stuff for Dungeons and Dragons stuff. They have a digital store. All stuff that they can really easily monetize and sell a lot of, um, especially if they bring in those third parties. Uh, but they, but they want they they are going after they you know, uh, I maybe they would have uh, done a little bit uh, different if it hadn't leaked. But they were going after these third parties, um, and they were giving them like seven days notice. One, one another thing that's making it worse for them is that they keep saying this is a draft and like it's an ongoing conversation. <laughs> uh, but they had given binding contracts to a lot of third parties and said, you have three, you have seven days. You either take this contract or you, you, uh, whoops, uh, you either take this contract or you stick with the riffraff with the normal OGL uh, for that. Everybody else is going to deal with um, like they were offering sweetheart deals mm. to certain publishers. Right. So yeah, I mean, I don't understand how twenty five percent of revenues makes it out the door. Like that, that that's I I understand they're they're under monetized. I'm I'm with you. I got all that, but twenty five percent of revenue just seems 
outlandish. Like it, it seems, of course there's going to be backlash. That's an insane amount of money. Yeah. And I, I was, so, so on the, I've been tooting off on this on S.social mm. or uh, Mastodon instance. I think they would have been a lot better off. Like, you know, they can have the, you know, uh, the brand protection parts. But like, imagine if they updated the OGL to say, if you create a PDF version of your of your game, you have to sell it on our marketplace. You have to make digital tools. Then you get your your twenty five percent because then you play you do the Apple. You make your little your little yeah, app uh-huh. store, uh, and you have no actual protection. Other people can you know uh, can come and can set, can find it in other places, but you get your Apple store. And then you get your twenty five percent cut without saying it. I know, yeah. Yeah, and like Apple, you point to it the same no hateful speech, like the, the content concerns, right? That's what that you use right. the same argument. Look, we're just trying to keep all of our, all of this clean. We're trying to keep it a safe place, etc. That's a yeah. I think it's a great argument or a great you know route they oh. should have taken. Hasbro, hit me up if you yeah. need uh, you know business advice. Um, yeah. <laughs> So I, I think that you are underselling it just a little bit here. So for whatever it's worth, because we don't get to look at the internal books of Paizo, right? But Paizo, according to these, uh, according to my Google search, which obviously is going to be correct and not at all uh, <laughs> suspicious or subject to review or contest, uh, Paizo's estimated annual revenue uh, is $34.7 million per year, and they have 156 employees. So it's not like a small operation. Uh, if they're gener- and I don't know if they do anything else that they uh, generate revenue from other sources, but it's not an inconsiderable business. Uh, but I like just like quickly googling it. I found one that says twelve million. I found one that says five million. I mean, it's right. not inconsiderable. Uh, right. But like, they're also sending people to you. It's like, yeah, you could you could try to get a piece of that. But they are generating more money for you just by existing when they don't necessarily have to send that to you. They, that's that's the real thing is that they are making that money, but your entitlement to that money is so weak because they can make any, they can just copy your rules. They well, can that's really be the just true copy test your rules here. The true test is going to be, all right, uh, now that, and apparently, uh, spoiler, I guess, for when Jake talks about this in two (laughs) minutes, but uh, apparently Wizards of the Coast is backing off of the whole monetization scheme, at least for now. Uh, But, uh, you know, if that's the case, if if Wizards of the Coast is going to monetize this, then great. Uh, We'll have a little test and a battle about uh, whether... Uh, whatever it is that uh, Paizos or whoever Paizos is standing in for anybody who's monetizing the D and D content through OGL, uh, either 1.0 or 1.1, uh, we're going to find out just how valuable that IP is if they try to make something without it. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, they, so they came out with a new statement today, but they've had a couple of statements, but they are now, totally re-adopting or like totally changing how they're going to go about this story um, or about the uh, about updating the OGL. They're going to publish a beta version of the OGL sometime this week uh, and for feedback 
uh, and that version will not include any um, will not include any license back. That was a that was also a huge part of the problem with the original one is that anybody who created uh, content based on the OGL automatically gave Wizards of the Coast the ability to do whatever they wanted with that content. Yeah, let's uh, dig into that, that for a second because the, that happens in section 12 of the OGL 1.1, right? And that section is basically about, hey, look, we don't want to run into, we Wizards of the Coast, we, when we're developing content under our own D&D property, we don't want to bump into other people's ideas that they're developing simultaneously and basically get blocked out of this new development and new creative uh, you know, sort of spinoff yeah. of our own intellectual property uh, just because somebody else is doing it at the same time that we are. And so that license back is pretty draconian and yeah. heavy handed. Uh, and if you look at it through the lens of what they're doing in 12A uh, or in section 12 overall, like they're trying to make sure that they get the fair opportunity to develop and like, oops, we accidentally came up with the same idea for, you know, prismatic mind flares of the depths of Grimordia or something like that. Like if they stumble wow, upon the same thing, I, yeah, <laughs> real time coming up with that there. Uh, but if we stumble upon the same idea, the same new mechanic, the same kind of character at the same time, like I think they even say it in the OGL 1.1, like accidents happen or great minds think alike or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they don't want to get blocked out of their own IP. Well, that's, that's their explanation. Here's the words. Yeah. Here's the actual words. You agree to give us a non-exclusive, perpetual, irrevocable, worldwide, sub-licensable, royalty-free license to use that content for any purpose. So <laughs> it's like, oh, this is our explanation. We get to use anything you use, you make forever. We get to give that to anybody else. We get to make money selling that to anybody else. That's the, uh, you know, so they, they can say they have a bunch of like kind of fanciful explanations of what they're trying to do. Uh, but you know, if I'm one of the third party companies, you're not banking on that explanation. It says, you say you get a forever license for anything we make and you get to sell it to whoever you want. Yeah, that's, that's not acceptable, but that's not going to be included in the new version or that's what they say. Time will tell. Uh, that's to, coming to out be clear, this week. To be clear, that was not in the regular old Schmo uh, OGL license right. 1.1. That was in the commercialized, like we're making X, uh, we're, we're right. selling this for profit. So for people who are not selling it for profit, uh, people who are just making it on their own and not, you know, uh, demanding compensation in order to share it with anybody else, like, they're not getting that license back provision. But when you start being a company or some, or even an individual who's selling these things, then you get that license back provision. And uh, uh, it, it literally in the preamble, Jake, you're selling it short a little bit here because you're reading 12B because that's the spicy one. But the preamble in section 12 says, sometimes great minds think alike. We can't and won't cancel products out of fear that they'd be viewed as similar to uh, be viewed as similar to licensed works. And so like they're telling you in the actual OGL 1.1, the commercial version of it, like here's why we're doing it. 
it's not that you have to trust their words. Like it's literally in the contract that that's, that's the motivation. And well, since it's in the four corners of the document, you get to use that to interpret the document. You can use it to interpret it, but the, the actual operative language is, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've said that they're taking it out now, which yeah. is like, okay, like you're not doing the bad thing that you threatened to do, but you still threatened to do yeah. it. And that still kind of sucks. And, and again, just to bring it like, you know, it just every time it, it pops into my mind, if it's if this is something that I'm a third, if I'm a Paizo, like I can walk away from this the moment I want to. That's the thing right. The I don't need your OGL at all. Like I can I can make my own rules. I can make your your exact same rules. I can say uh, that my book is D&D compatible. I just have to potentially worry about you coming to fight me over something. But if I'm careful enough, then it's not even that big of a fight. And if I'm you, a big, if I'm a big Paizo money making machine, like you say I am, then I'll beat you in court. So well, do you really want to roll that particular 20 sided die? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Oh, exactly. There are some good, there are some good videos on this. Legal Eagle made a good video, but maybe brushed over the fact that actually you really want that that uh certainty you want to know that wizards of the coast isn't going to come after you if you're a business you don't want to deal with that yeah Um, this axiom among litigators that uh getting hauled into court is in the first place is losing half the battle maybe maybe more than half the battle and so uh just the fact that you end up getting sued uh, lawsuits aren't fun for anybody but the lawyers and oftentimes not even fun for the lawyers uh and so like no, neither of these companies, I think, want, is itching to sign up for this sort of legal battle the same way that like uh, Epic was itching to, you know, get dragged into a thing with Apple. Uh, that's right. a special case, probably uh, motivated by a special set of personalities is my hunch. Because <laughs> nobody likes lawsuits. They're not fun. Yeah. I hate getting sued. Like I hate my client getting sued, not me getting. I have never never been sued, as far as I know. I love filing lawsuits. Uh, it's so fun. That's one of my favorite <laughs> things to do is push the push the send no. button on filing a new lawsuit. I love it. Don't sue me, bro. Yeah, I'm not gonna sue you. Not yet. <laughs> so doesn't uh, Wizards of the Coast sort of harm their position by backpedaling? Then I mean, like if if you take it on on face value, the reasons for their their you know revoking and issuing 1.1 it seemed well then why how can you backpedal i mean you, you can't you gotta you gotta protect the hateful content you gotta you gotta monetize you gotta protect your ip why are you listening to a bunch of nerds you know yeah. a hue and cry well, well they're backpedaling the, temporarily they're not yeah. saying that they're not going <laughs> to kick the nazis out and they're not going to say that you know the pornographic dungeons and dragons stuff is going to be allowed to continue uh, unabated. Uh, what they're right. doing is temporarily backpedaling, especially as it relates to the royalty provisions and the license back provisions. I think those are the ones that people got primarily upset about, and yeah. probably some of the ambiguity about what happens with all of the stuff that we created under OGL 1.0. Uh, I think that there's a pretty clear right. answer to that. That things that were created under the intellectual property that was created under OGL 1.0 is going to continue on governed by OGL 1.0. And only the stuff that's generated going forward had OGL 1.1 hung in there and become the 
open gaming license, then it was only going to be things that are developed from the date of the inception of OGL 1.1 going forward. Probably not developed so much as published, uh, decided upon. Mm. It's like, what do you do with projects that are midstream? If they're not published, they probably go under OGL 1.1. But I'm far from a copyright yeah. or a patent or trademark lawyer. So I, I may be totally wrong about that. I think it would depend on whatever Wizards of the Coast says. Like They would have to put out some announcement saying, OGL 1.0 is hereby deauthorized. Here is OGL right. 1.1. And then if you're a gaming company that has not yet published something, then you, I don't know, you make your estoppel argument in court if you really want to go to court. But uh, they also, I believe they also clarified that any existing works will not have to be taken off the shelf, will not have to stop getting printed. Uh, if they want to stay under the OGL 1.0 license. So I think the reason that they backpedal is so that they don't completely nuke their entire yeah. business and destroy all of their goodwill. Uh, right. And probably what they're doing is like, oh, okay. Uh, we thought that we were doing a good thing here to get rid of the Nazis. Uh, turns out that we also did some bad things at the same time. So <laughs> we're going to want to hear from you guys about how to fix all this uh, so that we can get the Nazis out. And right. uh, also not make all of you enraged at the same time. Because you still yeah, have to deauthorize uh, 1.0 in order to kick the Nazis out, right? Yeah. I mean, that that the deauthorization, and there is some, <laughs> I imagine, among some of the D&D fans, there's some concern just with the fact that they are deauthorizing an old, uh, the old license at all. Like, they don't, they're not interested in hearing why. The fact that you seeded that in the original and now you're, you know, you're using that sort of backdoor to get rid of 1.0. I can imagine some percentage of players will be put off by that, no matter what the reasoning is. Yeah, and I've been trolling uh, D&D memes and the D&D subreddit to see the reaction mm -hmm. to all this. Uh, and uh, I'm well. Spent. Yeah. A yeah. Uh, and yeah, they they see even the most recent statements seem pretty clear, like the 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 implication is. D, the uh, OGL 1.0 is going to be deauthorized and you're not going to be able to create right. content under that license anymore. And some people are definitely mad about that. And I think having that licensing, that royalty provision and that license back provision in the leaked version definitely right. made everybody think that any change, like they're just going to view this whole change as a money grabbing scheme, like no matter what they say. Um, even if the primary goal is actually to take control of the brand and they definitely had to uh they had to do something because you know this is the walk back was prompted by people canceling existing subscriptions for uh D, D beyond which is the online service monetizable they're about to come out with a new version of DD called one DD, which has a i guess some kind of online element and that they were hoping to you know, to monetize heavily because and then nobody that that potentially could have physical books where other people could build and maybe uh, online components where they could be the marketplace for and pull the Apple Store deal. And they didn't want to ruin those launches. So um, or D&D &D Beyond is already already exists, but one D&D &D they didn't want to ruin. Um, so OGL 1.1 needs to go anyway, because it is not a perfect contract. Uh, it is missing certain key things like 
there's no merger clause in there that says uh, uh, that <laughs> all of that this is the entire agreement between the parties and that no other agreements exist and that all prior agreements are extinguished by this agreement and merged into it. Like it's missing. That's a boilerplate thing that right. should be in a contract. It should be in there and it's boilerplate because it belongs in basically every contract uh, and uh, it's not in there. So like OGL 1.0 needs to go. It needs revision. Uh, maybe not exactly the uh, revisions that it got and the way that those revisions were rolled out. Uh, that probably could have been solved by some good PR department work. Uh, but uh, OGL 1.0 needs to change. It doesn't necessarily have to change like this, but it needs to change. Yeah. But I can't claim to be part of the community or something. I've I like I've played like seven total times or something like that. So. You're an OG. You're a uh, D and D carpet bagger. Yeah, I am. I am like you're a local somebody. Yeah, uh, I'm like the uh, this. This is the like uh, equivalent of when the New York Times goes to like an Indiana diner and is like, "What are the diner people saying?" Uh, and uh, diner yeah. people, I like that. Yeah. The yeah. diner people. They just live in the di- that that's where category. I encountered them. So they live there. That's their only identity is that they're yeah. in a diner. I think yeah. Esquiring Minds has its first meme, the diner people meme. <laughs> the diner what, are the, people. what are the diner people going to say, Jake? Yeah. Oh, you can read plenty of New York Times place. articles about that. <laughs> All right. Well, fellas, thanks for the interesting yeah. discussion. On this. <laughs> yeah. this, was, this is a really interesting yeah. topic. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun with... Uh, what little bit of homework that I did against my will to do all of this. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. So I guess now every week we've been doing uh, we've been doing recommendations or just like summaries of what's going on. Uh, I guess uh, Andrew, what's been going on with you, or what recommendations do you have for us? Yeah, I mean, I have a little bit of both. Uh, what's been going on is I, I've had a, a dog that has had a, uh, a series of surgeries for bladder stones. So my recommendation is to not have your dog have bladder stones. <laughs> oh, no. um, and if you do, to to you know hire someone to take care of him post-op or something. It, it's I've been doing nothing but just uh, carrying this poor old guy outside and, and stuff. And so nothing really exciting happening over here. How about, uh, how about you, Jake? Um, well... The uh, I, I sadly have a, another dog with health health problems of his old own, an old pit bull, uh, oh, who's he's uh, a pit bull too. who's yeah, he's whining, whining outside of my office as we speak because he just got back from the bit. Uh, but on lighter note, um, you know, I, I we're all nerds here, but I maybe go a little harder, <laughs> uh, on that. Yep, sure uh, do. I, yeah, definitely. Uh, and you know. And I apologize for how the gamers are about to take over all the culture with all of our adaptations, the way that comic book nerds have done with cinema, which also I also watch a lot of comic book movies. Uh, But um, so, you know, there's been a lot of video game adaptations in history, uh, but finally one is is happening uh, for a high profile franchise. Somebody's really putting in effort. and of course, I'm talking about uh, Near Automata versions 1.1 anime uh, on Crunchyroll. Uh, I'm not an anime guy, but Near Automata is uh, a very unique gaming franchise that is like very unique with a very right. unique story. Very uh, unique. unique is binary, yeah. Jake. It either is or it isn't. It is. It is extremely. 
it is 80 percent one of a kind it is 90 95 percent one of a kind honestly oh my goodness uh yeah i'm so Uh, filled with rage right now (laughs) yeah jason is sweating immediately yeah oh my goodness on the spectrum i gotta turn off my mic for a minute I gotta turn on the off spectrum of now. uniqueness. It's like you know, pretty far out there. Um, okay. But yeah, that's uh, I, if you're an anime person, I'd recommend it. Also, The Last of Us is getting an adaptation on HBO. Somebody did that, I guess. Wow. What about you, Jason? You're really uh, you're really burying the lead there because uh, it's hard to like <laughs> be out in the world at all without hearing about The Last of Us right now, which I haven't watched yet. Uh, my recommendation right now is, uh, I have, I, I really like, I have watched all three of the currently published seasons of the show on Apple TV plus for all mankind. This is a show that is basically, uh, what if the space race continued between the Soviet union and the United States? And so the show starts Mm. off in the summer of 1969, uh, with the moon landing, gosh, I really hope it was 1969 that that happened. Uh, it was. I'd be really embarrassed if I'm wrong about that. Okay, good. Uh, and uh, then, uh, uh, spoiler, heavy spoiler, do the spoiler horn. Uh, okay, your time to fast forward has skipped ahead. Uh, the Soviets make it to the moon first, and they win the space race uh, to the moon. I love all three seasons of this. They've progressively gotten better, but now I'm going back and rewatching season one and holy smokes, like rewatching truly excellent shows and sort of peeling back the layers of the onion that you didn't catch the first time or didn't recognize the importance of it the first time. Uh, Like that's a really cool part, uh, really cool experience. So strong recommendation for the show for all mankind. It is a good like character drama with some sci-fi wrinkles, but not like, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars sci-fi, more like what if history had been a little different sci-fi? And that's really fun. I like that. Super cool. Strong recommend for for all mankind. I will quickly circle back. I didn't make a recommendation. I just talked about a sick dog and that's sad. So I'll conclude with uh, everybody should go watch the Mandalorian season three trailer, right? Oh yeah. I think the tra- that's yeah, season the three, season four, whatever. I was the trailer for the new one. No, no, just yeah. the trailer. looks cool. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I enjoyed our uh, chat this evening, uh, fellas. Yeah. Pleasure talking. Yeah. Bye world. See you next Goodbye. week. Goodbye world. Bye world. Oh, good grief. <laughs> Bye world. <laughs>